You're listening to Conversation with the Experts, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, my name is Steve Lacey and I'm the Allied Health Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. I also work as the Tutor Radiographer in Medical Imaging at RCH. Now, no doubt everyone has heard about cerebral palsy and some of us might work with patients with cerebral palsy quite regularly. But just how much do you know about it? And are we providing the best care for our patients? Well, I'm joined today by Dr. Juliana Antolovich. Juliana works in neurodisability at RCH, and anyone who has met her will know how passionate she is about this topic. And in my first 30 seconds of talking with her for the very first time, I certainly got a sense for her passion. Great to talk with you, Juliana, and welcome. Thank you very much. Yes, I am passionate. You might have trouble containing me. <laughs> we'll, we'll try, we'll try. <laughs> you think you know cerebral palsy? Well, guaranteed every listener is about to learn something new about it. Okay, let's talk cerebral palsy, Juliana. You could talk about cerebral palsy until the cows come home, I'm sure. It is such a big topic. So where, where should we start? So I just want to pull back a little bit and think um, about neurodisability and, and more particularly the experience of people who live with a neurodisability and in their interf- interface with healthcare, because I think there are a number of differences that are experienced by by people who live with these sorts of issues. I think we can easily recognise the physical barriers that impact on somebody who has cerebral palsy and is wheelchair reliant. But in fact, the attitudes that we carry about people are even more disabling, more disempowering, and often remove people who are living with a disability from the decision-making processes that affect their lives. If we think about Australia, we know that people who are living with a disability have a lifespan that is about 25 years less than those who are living without a disability. And that's not because of their underlying condition. It's actually because they have poor access to healthcare. And we see similar things in paediatric medicine as well. So I, I think that's a fairly significant issue With respect to cerebral palsy, I think there is also a sense that children with cerebral palsy have poor quality lives, and that's particularly something that a lot of medical doctors believe, and that does impact on their interaction, maybe how they provide a prognostic message, and how they help patients make choices. So I think having a moment to self-reflect on those attitudes is important. And there's also an aspect of the language we might use when we describe somebody who's living with a disability. Yeah. What kind of language are we talking about? This is a bit of a passion piece for me. I think that we often collect people who are living with a disability into the basket of global developmental delay or developmental delay, and that really doesn't allow us to see who the person is. So I would encourage everybody to think about not only the aspects of their physical disability, but how they communicate, how they think and engage, as well as the fact that they've got preferences, likes and dislikes, just like the rest of us in the community. So I would be really happy if we banned global developmental delay and developmental delay from the medical lexicon, to be perfectly honest. Oh God, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? (laughs) It would. And it's also good to not label them or group them all together and say, hey, this kid is dev delayed. Let's follow this pathway with this particular patient. And that happens 
on a daily basis, even yeah. from someone who does clinical, I know that happens. Yeah. How would you then define cerebral palsy? Well, cerebral palsy, there's a few things that are important to know about it. It is the most common motor disability of childhood, um, but it's an umbrella term. So there are multiple pathways to cerebral palsy. So it's an umbrella term. It describes a motor disability and it describes a disability that is permanent, but it's not unchanging. And that's actually a really important part of the the descriptor. Mm. So I do think of it more of a, as a clinical descriptor and a starting point. Yeah. Okay. We're probably much more familiar with kids who are at the severe end of the disability spectrum, the kids who are wheelchair reliant, who are the super users in the hospital. But it's important to recognise that 60% of kids with CP actually can walk without AIDS and fewer than half of the kids that we see with CP have an associated intellectual disability. And it always pains me a little bit that um, when somebody sees somebody in a wheelchair, they forget to inquire and find out who the person in the wheelchair is. And many children with cerebral palsy need aids to support their communication like a pod book. And that doesn't reflect their cognitive ability. That actually reflects their motor disability. Yeah. I once had a student who was at the end of his placement And we were just describing his experience with patients with cerebral palsy. And he even said to me at the time, he said, I'll bet you didn't know that I have cerebral palsy. And Mm -hmm. I said, I I didn't know that. And I would like going past you in the street would not have any clue Mm -hmm. at all. Uh, So it is interesting to see that spectrum. Can you tell me what a pod book is though? I haven't, I have heard of it, but I I don't really know exactly how it works. Well, a pod book is one of the devices or or tools that kids who have impaired communication can use to communicate. And I actually, it's a reminder of how clever kids are who can use them. It is quite a hefty book that has a series of pictures that kids can choose that take them down a cascade and they can build a sentence or take you to a thought that they have or a message that they'd like to give you. And I find it amazing watching kids use it. They'll scan down an aisle, nod their head at a particular picture, then their parent will flick through five pages and they'll make another choice. I've been seeing kids using pod books for many years and I'm nowhere near able to use them. So the fact that the kids I'm seeing can use them tells me something about their cognitive strengths. It's really, really amazing. It's like me trying to learn a new language. Kids (laughs) manage to be able to do it like that, but I, I can never get it. No, that's right. How common is cerebral palsy? So... The rates of cerebral palsy vary across the globe and the range is somewhere between 1.5 and 4 children per thousand live births. And so Mm. there's quite an enormous variation across the developed and the developing world. Why why is there a difference between the developing world and the developed world? There's quite a few reasons for that and it sort of ties into the risk factors, poverty, and low socioeconomic status, mm-hmm. um, exposure to infections. So infections like CMV and rubella are very uncommon in developed countries, whereas they're much more common in the developing world and still a cause of CP. And then obviously access to healthcare, but access to intensive care type healthcare, there's a big differential across across the globe. Okay. The rates of CP are actually reducing in Australia from 
one in um, 500 to one in 700 births. And that's fairly significant and there's multiple reasons for that. The other thing that's changed is the the phenotype of kids with CP has changed. So if I think about the early 80s, about half of the children that we saw with CP had a significant motor disability and that's diminished now. There's only about 25 to 30% who are in that high physical disability spectrum and there are a whole lot of reasons for that. The drop in the rates of CP and the severity of CP really happened in three main areas. Children born between 20 and 27 weeks, kids born around term, and that's NICU, PICU access, and also postnatal causes of CP. So um, education, access to information, you know, uh, not leaving your children in a car on a hot day has really changed that spectrum of of disease. So the severity and the comorbidity across the board is lessening. And we might talk about it a bit later, but there is a hardcore group of children surviving longer for those very same reasons, the advances in care. Yeah, right. And when you talk about like diagnosis, obviously this is going to be a, a big spectrum in terms of when you Mm. can do it, but when can you? So I think this is a really important thing to discuss because there are a lot of people who still believe you can't diagnose CP until somebody is two years of age, and that's just not true. CP diagnosis is based on a clinical examination. It's, It's a clinical diagnosis. And in fact, children who are at the more severe end of the disability spectrum, their symptoms and signs are present and evident as early as three to six months of age, and the diagnosis can be made then. Children who are going to have a milder phenotype, so kids who are likely to be independent walkers, are more likely to be diagnosed when they're older because the symptoms won't show themselves as, as clearly at an early stage. And I think it is important to think that there are certain uh, groups that will be diagnosed more early because people are watching them more closely. So somebody who is a NICU graduate is going to have different surveillance than somebody who's not, and it's the CP is likely to be picked up more yeah. early because risk factors are identified. And what risk factors are we talking about here? There's a whole lot of risk factors that going to NICU is a risk factor in and of itself. It means something has gone wrong with the baby in that early part of their life. So it might be prematurity. It might be small for gestational age. It might be early seizures, hypoglycemia. So the sorts of things that take you to a NICU can be risk factors for cerebral palsy. And so those children will be looked at more, more closely. But I think If we look at the broader population of kids, there are some things that are important signs. So a bubba who's not sitting up independently at nine months of age, who's not weight-bearing or who's showing asymmetry in movements from left to right, the clinician should be thinking about cerebral palsy in that Mm. population. And and there's clearly a lot of different ways that CP can happen Mm. and, uh, I mean, I've always thought of it, well, you know, early in my career, I, mm. I had always thought of it that it was something that happened during during childbirth, basically, yeah, like yeah. Um, asphyxiation, I guess, during childbirth. Yeah, but yeah. 
clearly it's a lot more than that. Yeah, yeah. There's, it's interesting. I think that that has been part of the history of cerebral palsy and continues to be. And, you know, I love little fun historical facts, but in fact, Sigmund Freud, the grandfather of psychoanalysis, he's, he was a neurologist and worked with children who had cerebral palsy. And he was one of the first people to actually say, I don't really understand why all of this happens in the 12-hour window of delivery when gestation is nine months long. People didn't really listen to him and it was work done in the late 70s and early 80s by two fabulous researchers who really highlighted that most children with cerebral palsy had a very unremarkable birth history. So that connection was untangled. And in fact, what we know now, about 10% of children with cerebral palsy have a history of that perinatal asphyxia. About 10% acquire their cerebral palsy postnatally, but the vast majority of children acquire cerebral palsy from something that happens throughout gestation. And there's multiple things that can happen through that through that time. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of in utero effects would we be talking about, do you yeah. think? Yeah. So we always think about infection and bleeds and they're things that can happen at any time. Mm. But I think genetics, which I hope we'll talk about in, in a while, is a really important part of what we see through gestation. I like to think about gestation in three sort of periods when I'm thinking about cerebral palsy. In the early part of pregnancy, the first trimester, problems with neuronal migration, infection, bleeding can have quite devastating effects because they will have a more global impact on the brain. And so kids who have some sort of disruption to brain development in that early part will have a more severe phenotype. That middle part is the time where we're seeing premature deliveries between 20 and 27, 28, 30 weeks of gestation. And that period there again can have quite a variable phenotype, but this is often the more classic picture of cerebral palsy where both legs are affected and the effects in the upper limb are less um, well-defined. And then we have the group that are born at term and basal ganglia, the deep uh, grey matter of the brain is very metabolically active. So any disruption to blood flow really can have a substantial impact. And so that that is a high-risk time and can create a different phenotype for the child with cerebral palsy. So we can learn something about the etiology by looking at scans and looking at the sort of profile the child has as well. I was going to ask whether, for want of a better word, the symptoms that a patient with cerebral palsy has, that would be then in some way directly related to the time that they acquired Cerebral Yeah, it can do. I wish it was as straightforward as that. Yeah, it'd be because, easier to diagnose. Yeah, I know. It? So, you know, some kids who have a really severe, profound hypoxic injury at the time of birth will have the same sort of global injury as somebody who um, has a has an insult in the first trimester. But the actual imaging appearance gives us clues to right. the cause, and and we can talk a little bit more about how we. We think about etiology. And so what about postnatal though? So postnatal um, causes of CP are probably spaces where we can make 
some really significant differences. But we're talking about infection and trauma and within that space of trauma, we're looking at both accidental and non-accidental injury as, as really significant causes. And there are other messages about child safety that have reduced the frequency of postnatally acquired CP. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever get patients where you can't find the cause? Unfortunately, yes. Genetics is an increasingly important part of the diagnostic workup, but we still have some patients where the etiology is not clear. In five years' time, that might be different. I think the the space of genetic etiology has increased exponentially over recent years, but there are still a cohort of children who have a diagnosis of cerebral palsy and the etiology is still unknown. But it's important to know that because then you get a, more of an understanding as to what their par- likely pathway is going to be. Yeah, I, guess. I, I do think that it can help with prognosis, but there are other implications for siblings yeah, um, okay. and for, for subsequent children in the family. Mm-hmm. So understanding the etiology I think is really, really important. How do you work that out, though? That's the that's the big question, I guess. Yeah. So, look, I think taking a good history to try and elicit some of the risk factors is a really important place. And what sort of start. risk factors are we talking about? Well, some of the things that we've touched upon, for example, a premature delivery, a small for gestational age child, mm-hmm. a history of infection, so chorioamnionitis a story where there is postnatal seizures or postnatal hypoglycemia. So something has happened around the time of delivery, an emergency caesarean section, meconium aspiration, any of those things that can um, disrupt are things that are important to elicit from the history. I also mentioned infection, and fortunately we're seeing fewer of those CMV, rubella infections in Australia but that, that's another risk factor. And there are other things that I think are a bit trickier. We know that IVF is associated with high risks of cerebral palsy, not substantially increased, but we know that there is a greater likelihood of uh, multiple pregnancy, as in not a singleton pregnancy, mm. and that then increases the risk of a premature delivery. So mm. it's a bit of a cascading effect. And we've also touched upon this, maternal education, socioeconomic status are also factors that are implicated in rates of CP. And we also recognise that the rate of CP is about five times higher in First Nations peoples, and that's that's significant. Wow, that is very significant. And, and I assume that's just obviously for the reasons that, that we kind of discussed before. Yeah, and, and it is about access to health, it's about education, but it is also about poverty and yeah. and they're sort of gut-wrenching to think what sort of effect that continues to have. Mm. And, you know, similar reasons for why the longevity of adults who are First Nations people is less than that of the non-Indigenous population. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's move on to investigations. What mm. do you think should be done for CP as far as investigations are concerned? I think if I do this post- podcast again in five years' time, I'll give you a different answer. <laughs> Maybe we'll but, do one then. <laughs> yeah, but, but at the moment I think a first-line essential investigation is an MRI. Some sort of imaging is really important to 
define what is happening. Now, an MRI is not required for the diagnosis. It's a clinical diagnosis, but the MRI is important for an etiological diagnosis. So I think that's an important distinction. What kind of things are you looking for in the MRI? Um, You might be looking for disorders of neuronal migration. You might be looking for evidence of a stroke. You might be looking for evidence of periventricular leukomalacia, which is sort of a hallmark feature of, of a child born prematurely. Okay. And and they can speak to the etiology. But about one in ten kids with C P have a completely normal MRI, which doesn't mean they don't have C P. Yeah. We just haven't don't find the etiological we don't have cause. the etiology from the imaging. Right. So the other thing that I think is essential, and I think this is an exciting area of C P is our understanding that it is a genetic condition mm. and there are many genetic etiologies. And from what we know now, about one in three kids might have a genetic diagnosis. But if we take, for example, a child born at term who has a normal MRI, their chances of having a genetic diagnosis increase substantially to maybe one in two. So, you know, I, I think we are starting to identify kids who are more likely. And I think the other area that has expanded, we know that that prenatal stroke is a cause for cerebral palsy. What we haven't appreciated is that there are genetic causes for prenatal strokes. Um, The collagen uh, mutation syndromes, important causes of stroke and important causes of cerebral palsy. Mm. So rather than doing a stroke workup, a genetic test looking for um, the reasons for a child to have had a stroke is going to be really productive and has implications for siblings. Yeah, absolutely. And potential risk for further further events in some of those children. So quite significant. So I think that's important. What worries me is there is not a great understanding at a community level about that. And some recent work that was done showed that only two out of three clinicians would still give a child a diagnosis of cerebral palsy if a genetic abnormality had been identified. So making that connection that a genetic etiology can lead to CP is one that we need to get the message out about. So based on that, should everyone with (laughs) CP have genetic testing? Well, (laughs) I would love everybody with CP to have genetic testing, but I think we have to be mindful of resources. Although in the not-too-distant future, most infants in certain circumstances will have some sort of genetic testing. So we will be moving into that space. But I think if we look, if you're seeing a child with CP who has a clean birth history, a really unremarkable birth history, or a child who has a normal MRI, or a child who has a really unremarkable history and quite a severe phenotype, they're kids that definitely should have further genetic mm. testing. And as I said, stroke, if there are some ab- unusual facial features, all of those things should push us towards doing genetic testing. Can, can you describe some of the problems that are common in children with CP? So there's a range of them, and and I think they're important to the experience of their wellness and quality of life. So the definition of CP 
includes a line that says they have problems with sensation, perception, cognition, communication, behavior, epilepsy, and secondary musculoskeletal problems. So that is a a big basket. But it's important to remember, and we're going back to your experience of that young person with cerebral palsy, mm. the vast majority of kids with CP walk independently. And I think a really important message that I want to get out is fewer than one in two kids with CP actually have an intellectual disability. Assume that somebody has good cognitive function rather than the other way around. Epilepsy is reasonably common, probably one in two, one in three. Mm. And uh, visual and hearing problems are also reasonably common. And thinking about those things and doing active surveillance is quite important. But is epilepsy one of the signs though? So if someone has, like let's say someone or someone develops epilepsy, should they have genetic testing for CP? Oh, it's a really good question. Like we're talking about going the other way then, aren't we? Yeah, the other way. So look, if we think that between 30 and 50% of kids with CP have epilepsy, epilepsy is common in CP. I'm flipping it around at a community level about 3% of the population have epilepsy. There's lots of non-CP causes of epilepsy Mm. and there's lots of epileptic encephalopathy, severe epilepsy syndromes Mm. where the child has a CP phenotype. So I suppose I wouldn't necessarily be doing CP type genetic tests in kids who have epilepsy, but in the same way as CP is a genetic condition for want of a better description. I think epilepsy is too, but you'd need to speak to one of the epilepsy doctors to really get the low down on that. That's above my pay grade. That's all right. <laughs> Sounds like another podcast coming up. So. <laughs> the high prevalence of epilepsy with the CP mm. patients, and it's yeah. not something that I had certainly um, considered before. Yeah. And, and I know that there's obviously respiratory issues as well. Yeah, yeah. Respiratory complications mm. are important because they're an important source of morbidity. They're probably the most common cause for hospitalisation and they are the leading cause of death in children with cerebral palsy. And there's lots of reasons, poor swallowing function, recurrent aspiration, musculoskeletal problems with restrictive lung disease. You know, there's lots and lots of reasons and lots of things that can be done to improve the respiratory health and wellbeing of kids with CP. Yeah, I think from someone who sees a lot of patients with CP and scoliosis, mm. I've seen a lot of restrictive respiratory issues as a result. Anything else from a musculoskeletal perspective? Yeah, so scoliosis is worth a big mention. Mm. Um, and look, again, the kids who are functioning at the more severe end of the disability spectrum are the ones that carry most of the burden of that disease. And we're really looking at between 60 and 75% of kids who are functioning at the gross motor function classification scale, level four and five, having scoliosis, so that's significant. The other musculoskeletal problem that's very common is that of hip disease. And again, if you look at a child who's functioning at the more severe end, which is level five, you have to assume that they're going to have some degree of hip disease. And that's important because it affects seating, it affects comfort, it impacts on a child's ability to engage, it can affect sleep. So there are multiple implications 
of these musculoskeletal complications. Yeah. And then you've obviously got other things as well that aren't, aren't musculoskeletal, like mm. gastrointestinal. And I'm being a bit bold, but I do want to talk about the gastrointestinal issues. Mm. Most of us are familiar with children who have CP having reflux and constipation, this sort of garden variety things. But we are increasingly seeing more complex gut problems, significant gut dysmotility that can impact on feed tolerance. Mm. And we're starting to see it as a life-limiting part of the spectrum of the disease of kids with with CP because it really is a multi-system disease. Can I spruik two other things that are really important? Go for your life, Juliana. (laughs) I'm particularly keen for people to think about the mental health of children with cerebral palsy. You know, there are still some people who think that if you have a learning disability or an intellectual disability, you don't have mental health problems and we know with absolute certainty that that's not the case. And some work we did a couple of years ago showed that about one in two kids with cerebral palsy have clinically significant anxiety. Mm. And if we compare that to the general population where it's at rates of maybe one in 10, Mm. so we should be looking um, for that actively. And the other area that I think as clinicians we need to do better is thinking about pain in kids with CP. Lots and lots of causes of pain and chronic uh, pain is extremely common, especially in those kids, again, at the more severe end of the disability spectrum who have movement disorder, you know, 70, 80% of those kids will be living with chronic pain. And if we're not asking about it, we can't help them. And do these problems have an impact on the lifespan? Yeah, they, they really do. And we are looking at the kids who are functioning at the more severe end of the disability spectrum. And somebody who is functioning at the GMFCF5 level and who has a significant movement disorder, they've got about 30 times the risk of dying young Mm. um, because of their underlying cerebral palsy. So that these comorbidities do in fact have an impact on the lifespan. And if you um, look at somebody who has a peg, who has an intellectual disability and who is wheelchair reliant, they're the sort of risk factors that really push your mortality to a much higher level. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is even though kids with CP carry significant mortality, as I said before, there's a group of children who are surviving longer, and that's because of advances in medical care, but also from societal changes where there are demands for a different level of care and a different approach to care. And they're a particularly important group because I think they, well, at least for me, create significant clinical and ethical challenges. Mm. I think that's probably for another podcast. You don't want me starting down that pathway. There are a number of cerebral palsy clinical practice guidelines on the RCH website. Mm. Juliana, do you know, do you have any other resources um, that you'd recommend for people who would want to know more about cerebral palsy and its management? So there are a number of community organisations that can be very helpful. And I shouldn't really say the Cerebral Palsy Alliance is more than a community organisation, but that is uh, an amazing organisation that funds research, but is an incredible resource. So that that's certainly a place that I would go to 
to get some additional information. And obviously the work that's being done in the Murdoch by a number of members of my team, that, that is another source of, of important information. Yeah, great. And what do you think is the future for CP with respect to treatment and management? Look, I think the genetic, our understanding of the genetic etiology may well open a number of treatment pathways. Mm. But I actually think the difference that we can make in the lives of children with cerebral palsy here and now is by becoming a little bit more disability literate and acting at a community level to make it an us, not an us and them. Yeah. And, and just awareness, I think, of, mm. of all of those things that you've talked about yeah. today as well. So yeah. that's wonderful. Thanks again, Juliana. Thank you what for having me. What a great topic. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Teach, Think, Treat, where we discuss aspects related to teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting.